Uh, some time ago, uh, I read in The Economist uh, magazine a very interesting statistic. And according to The Economist, about 10 years ago, just over 4 million people in the United States alone believe that they have come into some sort of personal contact with aliens. Uh, that is extraterrestrials, uh, UFOs. Uh, David Tanner is one of the four and a half million. <laughs> and it really struck me because uh, I think about it, but over four million people claim to have had some sort of personal encounter with aliens. And I thought, you know, there are only about two million Episcopalians in the United States, which begs the question, what are the aliens doing right that we're doing wrong? <laughs> Well, tonight in our lesson from Hebrews, I think that we have a pretty good indicator of, of what it is because when you believe something uh, or when a truth is, if it's true and it's been told to you uh, and you take it into yourself, it ought to have practical implications, right? If you believe in aliens, that's going to have practical implications for your life. And so, too, that if you have taken Jesus Christ into your life, that's going to have practical implications for you as well. It is going to change you, and in a radical way. And oftentimes, there is a weakness in the church where they fail to go for it in the way that the author of Hebrews goes for it tonight. When the author of Hebrews says to us, do you understand what it means that Jesus has died for you and has taken away your sins? how radical that is, and what effect that that ought to have on your life. These practical implications uh, for Christianity, it's a big deal in the world today, uh, less uh, concerned about truth, uh, but more about, uh, well, what can it do for me? Uh, what can Christianity do for me? How can it benefit my life? And that's what the world is saying right now. Uh, but tonight I want to say that uh, Christianity is true uh, not because it works, but Christianity works because it's true. And that truth has implications. Now, the funny thing is, uh, as we look at Hebrews tonight, Paul is, or not Paul, whoever you think wrote it, uh, cat's out the bag, uh, there's some dispute. But uh, if you look at the author of the Hebrews, clearly he's writing to who? Hebrews. <laughs> right? He's writing to Hebrews. Uh, and one of the earliest controversies in the church were those who were coming out of Judaism and coming into the Christian faith. And there was a struggle over, well, how much Judaism comes with us? Because, of course, uh, the temple was in full function until about 70 A.D. when Titus's armies came in and destroyed the temple. But during Jesus' day and even uh, almost 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple stood and the sacrifices took place. And so there was continual worship. And even in Jesus' ministry, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, where do you see him hanging out? The temple, right? You have a whole group of people, the Levites, uh, who uh, work in the temple. You have priests. You have people that go up simply to pray, people that go up simply to hang out and, and talk to one another. It's a gathering place. It's the center of religious life and community in Jerusalem and in Judaism. And what would happen if you go, if you need some bedtime reading, you can check out the Old Testament, uh, read up on your Leviticus and things like that in Deuteronomy. Um, better than Ambien. But uh, you what you see is that there was an offering or sacrifice for everything. 
There are also thank offerings. You know, you'd give a grain offering. You know, thank you, Lord, for doing uh, this in my life. So sometimes it was on the positive side. uh, But more often than not, you went up to the temple uh, to sacrifice, uh, to atone for some sin in your life. And it was just last month that uh, our Jewish friends celebrated Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And even though the temple's not functioning, what would happen back in the day is that this was the one time a year when the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And uh, there was a, you, you read about the curtain. Remember when Jesus died and the curtain was torn in two? Uh, you can actually read the historian Josephus, and he'll tell you what it looked like. It was uh, several inches thick. Uh, it was more than just sort of a vapory veil. It was an obstruction to get into the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would go in, and so in awe and so fearful were they to be in the presence of the Lord that they would tie a rope around the high priest's leg because in case he died, nobody's going in after that man, right? They're going to pull him out. And he would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on the ark, to atone for the sins of of the people Israel. And then they would lay their hands on a goat and they would send that goat out into the wilderness to represent the people's sins going away from them, which is where we get the term scapegoat. Next time you play Jeopardy at home. (laughs) So these have been part of the psyche and life of the Jewish people for centuries and centuries and centuries. And now Christianity comes along and says, there has been one sacrifice for any sin that has ever been committed or will be committed, and Jesus has died and he has paid the price for your sins. There's no need for a sacrifice anymore. This got Christians in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Think about it. Think about it. Do you know what Romans used to call Christians in the first and second century? Atheists. They call them, well, why? Well, you meet your Christian friend. Hey, I hear you're a Christian. Where's your temple? Well, we don't, we don't have a temple. You, you don't have a temple? Well, where do, you, where, do you, where do your priests work? Well, we don't have priests in, in the way that you think of priests. Well, then well, what about sacrifices for sins? You know, what, what are you going to... Well, we don't, we don't have that anymore. And so the Romans said... You're atheists. Christianity, it turned out, and even today still, is really the unreligion. It's not about uh, organization and ritual. Uh, It turns out that it's about relationship and the truth of Jesus Christ and how it affects our lives. Because the Christian could say, uh, yes, there is a temple and it's me and the Holy Spirit dwells within me and we do have a priest. His name is Jesus Christ, who is an advocate to the Father. And there has been a one-time sacrifice for my sins and that was Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And the Romans and the Jews looked at them cross-eyed. Well, Paul is, or the author of Hebrews, is writing uh, to his friends and, and saying, Uh, Look, here's the deal. Every priest still stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, but they can never, ever take away the sins. Now, why is that? Well, because you might go in and you might be very repentant and you might put an offering in, you might have a sacrifice made for your sin, uh, but how long after you leave the temple before before you think, I better go back? Right. 
uh, not far, not far. And so there is a sense of um, how do you ever know that you're in right relationship with God uh, if unless you're continually sacrificing. Uh, my mother uh, married uh, a gentleman uh, who was Jewish and uh, going to our family functions uh, really is a little bit like a Woody Allen movie. And, um, and I was making a joke about it to uh, one of his nephews who uh, is an Orthodox Jew and um, everybody else in the family is as Jewish as the Olive Garden is Italian. Uh, but he's, he's, pretty, he's pretty serious. And, he, um, and I, made, I made mention of it and I said, well, it just seems like everybody is a little paranoid. And he looked at me with a straight face and he said, wouldn't you be too if you knew that there was no sacrifice for sins? And I kind of looked at him and he said, do you realize for the Jewish people there's been no sacrifice for sin since 70 A.D. when the temple was toppled? And I asked him, well, how, how do you cope? And he said, you know, Andrew, I, I just live the best life that I can and, and hope that it all works out for me. Uh, and at that moment, it got very uncomfortable because it was sort of like, here's my segue. <laughs> and um, I said, okay, uh, let's talk about uh, Jesus Christ and how that offering has been made. And you don't have to live wondering, am I forgiven? Are things all right between God and me? Because all of us deep down inside still understand at our very deepest level that there is a need for atonement in our lives. Even if you're not a Christian, if you're hearing this time, even if you're not a Christian, you understand that if you've done something wrong in life, there is a part of you that feels like you have to make it right. Regardless of what it is, that you feel like you need to make up for it in some way. In any human relationship you're in, this is going to happen because you're going to let people down. And so you may, in fact, uh, if you're married, uh, you might be stopping at the flower shop uh, on the way home. Uh, you might, uh, if you have children, uh, you might be getting them a special treat uh, because you uh, yelled at them when you shouldn't have uh, this morning. Whatever the case may be, at a very human level, all of us understand uh, the need for atonement. Uh, but there's still a part of us that wonders, is that enough? Is it enough? Because... Even though the person that you might have offended says, I forgive you, don't you still feel it looming out there? Right? St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that love keeps no record of wrongs. But how many of us have a filing cabinet at home? <laughs> One of the fra a couple words that I had to get rid of in my marriage were little phrases like, you always, or you never. Right? Because what that means is like, uh, you know, if someone says, well, you always do this. Well, when was the last time I did it? June of 1987. <laughs> you did the same exact thing. Because the fact of the matter is that I might have been forgiven for what happened in June of 1987, uh, but it's still hanging out there. And we all have relationships that are defined by those things. That uneasy feeling when you're around that person, even though the person doesn't bring it up, it's still, it's still out there. And you wonder, this person has forgiven me, but it still seems like this sin, this fracture in our relationship is very real. How is it going to be healed? How will it be healed? And the same is true of God. I mean, we often wonder, yeah, I know God forgives me, but for some reason, this sin in my life is dogging me. 
and I can't seem to get over it. And I know that God has forgiven me, but there's something in the pit of my stomach. It comes up at the strangest times when I lie down to go to bed at night, uh, when I'm at work, uh, when I'm walking down the street. All of a sudden, this memory comes to my mind, and I can just feel it, and it makes me feel ill. Even though I know God has forgiven me for it, why do I still feel the way that I feel? And the reality is that certainly Christ's death on the cross took care of that. And Christ didn't just come to forgive us. He came to heal us and remove the burden of guilt in our lives. But how does he do that? Well, look, I'm the first to admit that I hold on to sin in my life. And I'm not talking about, you know, St. Augustine who said, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things that I really am repentant about, things that I know grieve the Lord, and I just can't let go of them, even though I know God has forgiven me. And yet sometimes they're silly. They're silly, and the person that I might have offended will say, look, I've forgiven you. A really ridiculous example of this is I was on a quail hunt once and um, there was a new dog working and he had a, the, uh, he jumped a lot. And, um, and a quail came out and uh, it was not a terribly low shot, but I should have known better. And I took the shot. I hit the bird. Credit there. Uh, and the dog didn't jump up, but I could just see the look on the hunt master's face. Just kind of like, what was he thinking? And somebody, and another guy in the group came up to me and said, you know, you shouldn't have taken that shot. Now, most of us would think, Andrew, get over it. It was fine. The dog didn't get shot. That was five years ago, and I still think about it. And I still feel awful. Why? Was it really guilt over taking a low shot? No. It's actually guilt because one of the sins I struggle with in my life is I care too much about what other people think. And every time I'm around them, I think, even though they probably don't, I think that they think, hey, there's Andrew who took the low shot, who's going to kill a dog one day that's worth more than his car. Right? Uh, that's, that's what I think. And, and why won't I let that go? Because I care too much about what people think. And so I spend my life trying to position myself and, and make people uh, like me for me instead of feeling the freedom and knowing the freedom that Jesus Christ has come to bring me. You know, I've been talking a lot about um, the forgiveness of sins tonight, but there's an old word that's been lost in the church, and it's uh, in the old confession, in the, I'm sorry, in the old um, prayer, uh, the old confession of sin, and that word is remission, that we've prayed to God for the remission of our sins. Now, today, that's translated as forgiveness. But do you know what remission means? Yeah. When I was in high school, I was at my friend Katie's house, and she was having a, a birthday party. I think it was her 16th birthday party, and her mother had just purchased this beautiful oriental rug. And I had a glass of grape juice. You know where this is going. And, um, and I was goofing off. I was goofing off. I wasn't being careful. And I spilled almost the entire thing on this new rug. You know, there's not been a time that I haven't gone back to Katie's parents' house where that story has not come up. <laughs> Do you know why? Because every time you walk past that rug, you still see the stain. It's faint. 
It's faint, but you can still see it. And even though Katie's mother has forgiven me time and time, and every time she rings it up, uh, she, uh, <laughs> she, says, she says, you know, I, know it, it, I, I forgive you. I forgive. And I'm like, really? Um, but it's still there as a reminder. But to remit somebody's sins is not only to forgive you for the grape juice, but it's also to remove the stain as if it never happened. So that when I go into that living room now, uh, that stain is no longer there and it no longer conjures up memories of what might have been, been. And so when God forgives you of something, he doesn't just forgive you, but every once in a while brings up the issue of the stain. Hey, here's a little reminder of what you've done. He's actually remitted it. He has separated you from your sin as far as the east is from the west as the north is from the south so that when he looks at you, he looks at you with utter and unconditional love. Now, the irony of that is when he does that, it, it kind of makes you still feel bad about your sin, doesn't it? Uh, because you think, how could somebody love me in this way, knowing who I am and what I've done? How could somebody love me in this way? And that's hard because what I like to do is I like to look to myself internally for assurance that I'm okay, right? And what I constantly need to be reminded of is St. Paul, right, Andrew, as the author of Hebrews is saying it's a habit hard to break. What he is saying here, he said, look, therefore, knowing this, what God has done with your sin, remitting it, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, through his death on the cross. And since we have great priest, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, uh, when we fall into sin and we struggle and we will hold on to it and never let go of the things that bog us down in life, those things that when we think of get into the pit of our stomach and make us sick, uh, we don't need somebody to tell us, you know, it's okay, don't worry about it, just try to forget about it. What we need to be reminded of is what God has done in our lives, even for Christians. This is not Christianity 101. Uh, this is Christianity at the graduate level too. That the very thing that people that are coming to faith newly, uh, what they hear, we need to hear too. And so tonight know this, uh, that God's love for you is so great and His death on the cross and His mighty resurrection is so powerful that He has remitted your sins. And when that truth sinks down deep into your heart, you can go through life with freedom with a clear conscience, knowing that God is not holding it against you. And therefore, if God is for you, who can be against you? And so that we might be made more than conquerors, knowing this great love that Jesus has for us and praising him for his blood that cleanses us even today, even as Christians. Amen.